Welcome to the NLP View with your host, Donna Blinston. Each week, Donna will explore how the techniques of NLP can help improve your personal and professional life. And now, here's your host, Donna Blinston. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the NLP View radio show. My name is Donna Blinston. On today's show, I am joined by Mark Peters, an NLP master practitioner and trainer, cognitive behavioral therapist, and clinical hypnotherapist. On today's show, we are going to discuss how NLP can be used to support patients with asthma and anxiety. Neuro-linguistic programming, NLP, is an applied psychology which focuses on how the patient expresses their problem and the behaviors that they have developed in relation to their problems, whether that be a medical, a physical, or a mental problem that they're experiencing. NLP provides a series of tools and techniques that enables us to understand how we use our language and how that affects us both physically and mentally, reviewing the beliefs and values that they have towards their own health and recognizing the patterns of behavior that exasperate their current conditions. Anxiety can be experienced at different levels and although most people experience a relatively mild form of anxiety when facing daily events, other people suffer from a severe anxiety disorder which disrupts all activities of daily living. This anxiety compounds and is compounded by asthma, which in and of itself can be solely created as a result of an underlying anxiety and nervousness or a lack of self-esteem and self-belief. So I'd like to welcome to the show Mark Peters. Hello, Mark. Yeah, hi, Donna. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, and um, I suppose recovering asthmatic as well, so I have another point of view. Brilliant. That is one I'd love to share on this interview with okay. you. Okay. It's in, I, th- I find inter- asthma quite interesting. I've, um, I've got two younger brothers who've experienced asthma at varying levels. Um, often, a lot of children do suffer with asthma as a childhood asthma, which they naturally grow out of. And um, from both of my brothers, that ha- tends to have been a situation they've experienced. And then there's also the side that I could see when it was going to be compounded. From the nursing perspective, there was the obvious signs like the cold weather, not wearing a coat and running around like a mad thing around the field tended to bring on the asthma. Yeah. But then there was other times when they were a bit nervous or before going to um, a school play or, or going into the um, schoolyard if they were late for school and they were having to rush out the car and go in quickly. I noticed signs when now and again the asthma was just starting to, or the shortness of breath, which could either be controlled by them or not controlled by them. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. to find out what your experience is, and I know you work with a lot, of, a lot of people on this. Yeah. So, where, where, what are your thoughts and experience? From a, from a personal point of view, I grew up with um, asthma that was allergy-related, so horse hair, cats, house dust. I mean, it's been quite lucky because now I don't have to do any housework because I'm allergic to house dust, which is not. Oh, uh, but certainly, I would agree that it got brought on by the uh, being in the environment with the cats, for example. Um, but it got brought on more, I found later, by an expectation of uh, an asthmatic attack, uh, knowing I was about to go into an environment where there would be cats. Uh, and, and then you start to notice it more and more. So from my personal point of view, it, it started and then eased off through, through my life. And now when it tends to happen in severe conditions like if we're doing a lot of work in the house, having building work done or replacing carpets, uh, things like that. So there's a lot of dust disturbance. 
Well, what I have noticed, though, is that the secondary gain that people start to get from having conditions like asthma, uh, not always intentional uh, initially, but they're finding it as a, as a way out of doing things. Uh, I remember an old saying my granddad used to have, which is, I can't do that because I've got a bone in my elbow. Uh, and, and he always said that as an excuse not to do things. And I trusted him as a child. Uh, but then you realize that people do this later. Um, yeah. I can't do that because of my asthma or I can't do that because of my anxiety. And uh, yeah. Sometimes it's true. Sometimes it, it becomes a given excuse that becomes helpful that they've yeah. forgotten about. Uh, and, that, and that gain is what we start to notice is when we listen to people's language, that we listen to structures uh, of how they using their words to explain things and when the emotional connection is not there and you realize it's, it's sort of an excuse unintentional sometimes but that's what we're looking for in language so uh, I hope that makes sense it goes completely I actually experienced it this week um, after working with a client um, I, I've got I'm lucky that I live on a farm and I said let's go for a walk and um, just enjoy the fresh air and let whatever you've learnt through our coaching session just to sink in and she said oh, okay then lovely and it was a beautiful day and we have we do live on an incline being in Wales and um, she says oh I can't walk up there I've got asthma and I said oh that's interesting and then just carried on walking and didn't didn't allow her to go any further and she walked all the way up but I'm sure if I had just said, oh, okay, shall we go downhill or somewhere else, we would have done. Yeah. But she immediately had that response of, oh, I can't do that, I'm, I'm asthmatic. Yeah. Which was, a, a, in a way, a knee-jerk response that she's learnt to, to express that has limited her own abilities. However, we walked up, and it's, it's a fair old hill, mm. we walked up it with no problem, sat at the top and then tooted on down later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard this many times. I, as I mentioned to you previously, I go into the hospital working with uh, patients with COPD, uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. So I know it's not asthma, but it's an allied lung condition. Uh, and often they'll say they can't do things because of their COPD. Yeah. Uh, and, and you hear it more and more where people do these, I can't because, I can't because, it's like my granddad in his elbow. It's, uh, and they, they don't consider that self-limiting belief. Yeah, what if you could? I, I'm, yeah, what if you could? I remember even saying once to somebody, um, and this was going into a group, and we're doing some exercise, doing some Tai Chi uh, with, with asthmatics, and, and uh, they said, well, we'll just carry on. And the lady said, I can't do that uh, because I've got asthma, because I've got arthritis and various other things. And the carer was about to say, I'll just do what you can. Uh, and I mm. said, no, no, no. And I said, so what is it that you can do? And she started doing something, and next thing she's doing the same as everybody else. But we don't realize just a change of words from do what you can to what can you do has such an impact. Uh, and uh, what would it be like if you could? And that, the whole rephrasing of uh, questions uh, and statements makes such an impact on patients. It does. It's, you're leaving that door open from them, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Rather than they they've already limited it themselves, and whether they've already closed it or they've just left it ajar, yeah. you literally are opening it wide open and taking any resistance that they've got there. I do think people they they as well as it is that secondary gain definitely, but I think there's an element of they rely on they've put it metaphorically there in front of them 
in a way, a, a safety cushion yeah. to rely on it. So if, it, if they do do something and they can't do it or they're struggling, yeah. it's like, well, it's because I've got asthma, it's okay. Whereas, no, actually, I should be able to do this. I need to get a bit more fitter or I need to ask for help. Yeah. And I think it's, there's a lot around that as well. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And often people get caught up in the word disabled uh, rather than enabled. Uh, and I, I do find it quite funny because it's, it's the wrong word anyway. A, a disabled parking space would mean, in effect, it's broken because it's disabled, but it's not. It's an enabling parking space. So when we're looking at working with people, we want to enable them through their change of thought, uh, enable them through uh, exploration of their beliefs, rather than disable them by continuing to uh, reinforce the conditions they're living with. Uh, there's been some great research I discussed in the article recently in uh, the consultant journal by um, the, the research by um, Richard Davidson looking at uh, primary words uh, and the emotional impact it has. Uh, and you can read more about it in the article, but for, in brief, they found that when you work to people with asthma, for example, uh, and they work through priming word groups. So they work uh, words that are emotionally based, words that are conditionally based, uh, and words that are just neutral. And they're read out lists. Uh, and to, to work on it, they also uh, got the patient to, to breathe and uh, inhale uh, just mice-infused air so that they could bring on uh, any asthmatic condition or allergic condition. And they found that when they use primer words like uh, wheeze or cough or chesty or breathless, that it brought on uh, a conditioned response. When they were used emotional words like uh, lonely or isolated or um, that sort of area of work, then they got an emotional change. And this is all being measured in, in the MRI. And, and more and more we realize that we do use primer words. We don't intend to do them. We ask people, how breathless are you? Uh, or how breathless can you guess? Uh, and we start to add those conditions. And so they hear a word and it becomes a trigger. Uh, yeah. You mentioned CBT and they call them triggers. We might in NLP call them anchors, but also primers. And, uh, and it's that process of realizing uh, how they add together. It is, and if there's anything that a patient um, is afraid of or struggles, especially with the elderly, like walking upstairs or walking, uh, doing a walk anywhere, yeah. we are automatically, as a nurse, you say, how do you find it walking upstairs? And if that's something that they may be nervous with from a physical and falling point of view as well, we're associating their asthma and shortness of breath with a fear that they might already have whether it be because of a muscular or a joint pain or um, just general aging side, of them going up and down stairs. Yeah, yeah. So there's that side. Our tests as to how um, good or bad their asthma is, all of our tests are in things that, in effect, are those priming, primal words. Yeah. The things that are going to initiate a response, initiate concern or worry, we're giving them for them to judge it on. Yes, absolutely. It's like a vicious circle. Yeah, yeah. Asking words like "how painful is it?" You know, is quite a, yeah. a, a great common phrase that you hear. Uh, I know my wife told me when she, I think I mentioned this previously about her, her giving injections when she stopped using primer words like sharp, scratch, needle, anything like that. That people stopped having any expectation of pain, uh, yeah. and it changed massively. You know, I, I know 
doing these things, people are imprinting patterns and making these little programs in their head, uh, schemes if you like, that create these associations. Uh, and it's just a human design. So our job really is to notice these packages of information and how we can reframe them, how we can use words in a different way that will have an impact. Yes. Yeah. We, we do it without even realising, I think. Yes. And especially within within healthcare, we've got a we've got a selection of almost pre-taught words, whether that's taught through um, the university or it's taught through our mentors and who we've um, seen, which are of from an older school, and we're we're following on that same trend, and we're using words that aren't that aren't enabling, as you very lovely put before. But we are we're automatically disabling people with the choice of words we use rather than enabling them and giving them that control back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and as you said, it's not intentional. I, I, I find no. it hard to believe that any, any clinical professional person would likely um, be focused on patient creation. Uh, no. <laughs> we use words that from our map, not from their map. So we say a certain word that we think is helpful uh, to the patients, but when they hear it, they hear a completely different thing. They have a different perspective, like a lady with relaxation who couldn't do relaxation. Uh, she said it made the worse. So when we had an experience, that I had to avoid the word that we had an experience. And I said, so if you gave that a name, what would you call that? And then she said, oh, well, I, I suppose that's what relaxation should be. So we had a new experience. And it's about the maps that we use compared to theirs. So from from here, really. The next step is um, how do we start to look at how anxiety is formed? Yes. All right. So, uh, from my point of view, I'm seeing the more and more I see uh, patients at the hospital or, or privately, I'm realizing that more and more conditions are really come under a broad net title of anxiety based. Uh, and the difficult part to handle is, well, not handle. To change a perspective, for probably a better phrase for a change of perspective, is that an anxiety-based condition is a, flight of, a fight or flight state, in, you, activating the sympathetic nervous system. So your heartbeat is going faster, your breathing patterns are changed, circulation change, your blood pressure is going up, etc., etc., which is absolutely fine when your if your system is perfect working order, but if yeah. it's not maintained correctly from lack of exercise or it's wearing out or it's got faults in the heart condition or lung condition, then when that state of fight or flight occurs, it puts you under strain. So if you're getting anxious about being breathless, the anxiety increases the breathlessness or uh, you get anxious about uh, your heart condition, that anxiety can bring on the heart condition because of the nature of the design of our system it's just a vicious circle yeah. trap, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and and because anxiety is a fully associated state, people don't observe themselves being anxious. They experience the anxiety happening, uh, uh, and they experience it from a memory. They recall past experiences and build it all in uh, a sort of full 3D emotional content movie. Uh, what they've missed out is the fact that they are the movie editor. They designed the movie. They adjusted it, they put the soundtrack on and calibrated it to be as scary as possible uh, and forget that they're in charge of that. So uh, if, we, if I keep it at that level, that anxiety is a mind-made movie that we're in charge of running and that anxiety is a natural state 
control uh, and affects our sympathetic nervous system, so it brings on that fight or flight. Therefore, that presupposes that the solution would be adjust the movie and then disengage the fight or flight response. Uh, does that seem sensible? It seems perfectly sensible. Okay. It's very much whatever whatever your body can do, your body can undo it. Absolutely. So if you're if you've created a state for yourself in response, that's often your body's best way at that moment to respond to whatever situation's going on. It's providing you with the resources that you need. Yeah. So from the sympathetic nervous system, because your circulation is getting increased, you've got more oxygen going to your brain so you can think more clearly. Yeah. So that's what your body's doing for you. Yeah. So by us taking control of that and saying, okay, I don't need all of these additional bonuses with the anxiety side. Let me slow it down. I've got the oxygen to my brain now. I'm thinking more clearly. What do I need to slow down in order so that I can react to it with my condition as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in NLP, one of the presuppositions is uh, all behaviours have a good intention. I, I prefer all behaviours are purposeful, or, or for what purpose that behaviour. Uh, yeah. Because it helps me get a clearer like view. It does, it does. I like that. Um, I'll, I'll be taking that from you, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it just reminds me. <laughs> That's fine, it's all about NLP. We like well, therapeutic magpies, aren't we? So the, um, yeah. <laughs> the... the um, so the aim is, as you said, there is no negative process that our body does. Everything has a purposeful intention. So when this sympathetic nervous system kicks in, it, it does uh, close down the extremities so we don't pump blood out when we get cut. It does increase oxygen to the brain. It, it does uh, fire off our muscles, uh, release all the things that we need to do to do the job it's designed to do. Unfortunately, it, it's not very good at calibrating it and, and being appropriate in its response, it just fires off. So next we now start to put need to load triggers in a relaxation. Also how people press pause to be able to disassociate. Uh, there's a great thing, it keeps being quoted in, uh, I remember reading it first in Stephen Covey's Seven Habits uh, and it was originally from a guy called Viktor Frankl and it's between stimulus and response is a space and that space is our free will. And it's really almost like you want to press a, put a pause button in that space. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and if we could, when we have that trigger, that initial sensitization event, that that you know, the uh, flowers, if it's an allergy, um, cats for me, uh, a breathlessness because of overexertion or nervousness, whatever that trigger is, if we can then press pause, and then choose an appropriate response, and then build that process up. So disassociate from it, uh, observe it, notice what the movie that we're playing, what that looked like, um, and just making adjustments. I, I remember working with a guy who said he, his biggest fear was going upstairs because he would get so breathless. Uh, and when he explained it to me, it was clearly uh, a sort of Alfred Hitchcock movie, uh, <laughs> of, uh, stairs going off into the distance in the darkness and going on and on and on. Uh, and yeah. uh, when we adjusted that movie by saying to him, well, if you were to sit back now and watch this movie, could there be a light at the top of the stairs? Oh, is there a light? And he said, yes. I said, if you turned it on, oh, God, he said, I can see the top now. I said, okay. Now, staircases have 13 steps. So if you counted each one, how many do you think you could go up to get to the top of their stairs easily? He said, oh, probably three or four at a time. 
So I said, okay, imagine you see yourself in that movie up and down the stairs, taking your time so you can do it easily and comfortably. And when you've done it enough times that it seems more straightforward and more natural to you, come to the bottom and open your eyes. And you see, that's very strange. So it mm. seems different. And it's only that. It's just, how can we adjust the movie? If anxiety is a natural defense response, just saying a phobia, and a phobia is an anxiety defense response, if we can recalibrate that so people can become more enabled than disabled, if people can become more um, aware of the mind-made movie and how to be their own movie editor, how to change the volume, change the soundtrack, uh, move the distance, they can have a whole impact on repatterning those schemas, those brain processes. It's curious how you say that, because we do a lot of work around strategies and of how the, it's that trigger. Somebody's already decided what's going to happen because of that trigger that they've um, associated to. Yeah. And the, the, the strategy bit is putting that um, is putting that pause button in. But just as you said, a lot of our work is so linguistic that we are working with their own model of the world, which is what you've just described. We've you've taken that person's model of how he's perceived his staircase mm. and just by being curious, which is what an LP is, it's being curious into how that how it is a problem for that person. Yeah. And for him that it was a problem because there was no lights and it went on forever. And just by being curious and asking those enabling questions of what if you did this? What would it be like if you did that? How can you do it? those motivating and empowering questions, you completely transform that person's perception of what they cho of how they've chosen to limit themselves. Yes, yes. Uh, even if we start with something straightforward like use of tense, if you start to past tense things and current tense and future tense, what was it like? How could it be? Uh, what difference will it have? To start to change the tense to be useful it has a big impact. Huge impact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huge. Once I started to consider the fact that anxiety is a mind-made movie and a future-paced condition, so we're anxious about something that's going to happen or that has happened in the past. It's not, it's not a present state. It's not a mindful event. Then it's a movie playing. And once it's a movie playing, you can adjust it. And empowering people to realize that they can do that themselves is massive, you know, whether it be um, asthmatics or COPD patients or, or anxiety patients. From anxiety to go on stage, to anxiety to go for an interview, to what the NHS term uh, general anxiety disorder, when it's got so spread that no one's quite sure what it is yeah. the triggers are and when it goes on. Uh, and it's very easy for us to globalize things. Whereas if we can start to be more specific to chunk down and find out when specifically, how specifically, uh, the generalizations start to reduce. Uh, I see this a lot with phobias as well. Yeah. We've got a, as I think as a, whether it's a nationwide thing, we've got a, an amazing ability to generalize things. And as soon as a medical professional has given you that diagnosis of a generalized um, anxiety disorder, it's almost confirming you confirming to the person that they've got anxiety over every possible thing in their life yeah. and just by asking that specific question of well, when specifically do you do anxiety yeah. noticing the do you do rather than do you have yeah. you're 
it's it's like it's gone from already a big problem to little problems that sit here and sit there. And one of the things that I I love doing with um, people with anxiety problems is asking them when did they decide that they were going to have that they're taking them back into the past and when did they decide that they had anxiety? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what what choices did they make and what decisions did they make and what beliefs did they form around anxiety in the different relations? And often that question, when you ask that, and they go back to the first time they've experienced it, they they they. They're quite muffled, muffled themselves. They're like, oh, I, I don't know why I decided that that was going to become a problem. Yeah, yeah. And, and asking them to discuss the differences between anxiety and nervousness and curiosity. Uh, yeah. I, I know when I was a child, I certainly didn't have anxiety. I had this constant nervous curiosity, um, fear, excitement. You, know, you shouldn't do that. Why not? Let's go and find out. Don't break in there. Don't climb that tree. Don't go here. Don't do that. Why not? In, in, in that fear, excitement. I mean, how is that? any different than anxiety uh, it, no. and when they start to compare the two it, it's quite surprising to get people to realize that a normal nervousness about going on a first date a normal nervousness about um, standing up on stage giving a presentation how is that not a nervous excitement or curiosity compared to anxiety uh, and how can you calibrate it it's, it's once you run your own brain it is fascinating. I remember reading somewhere, I think I read it, I'm, not, I'm just going to say I made it up myself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we give this fantastic tool that can both harm or heal, but no one gives us the user manual for how it works. Uh, yeah, I'll say I made it up. Uh, <laughs> and it is that once you start to give people tools to play with them, to adjust them, to deal with it metaphorically, to calibrate and to disassociate so you're not trying to say you have anxiety let's look at how you can help or I can help you stop it but take it away and talk about it hypothetically somebody to have anxiety or curiosity what would the difference be if you could press pause now put a different soundtrack on what impact would that have just to ch- start to change that uh, and it isn't just us talking hypothetically there's research supporting it Richard Davidson stuff there's, there's other stuff around allergies uh, I was quite fascinated when they were doing that. Uh, there have been a few studies about affecting allergies through uh, disassociation and reframing, uh, desensitizing people without any sort of medication, just purely doing it hypnotically. Mm. There's loads of research, and you've got a, link, a lot of links to that as well on your website, haven't you? Yeah. Would, would you be able to give? I'm conscious that our, our half an hour has nearly ended already. Could you give our audience yeah, your contact details and how they can find out more of this? From you. Okay, certainly. Uh, yeah, my website is uh, balancedapproach.co.uk. Uh, I'm based in Birmingham uh, and I've also set up an NHS website on the NHS network called NLP in Healthcare. And uh, maybe you'd like to read the article you can read online now in the um, consultant journal, right, which talks about NLP in consultations and in coaching and so on. Brilliant, brilliant article. Thank you. Well, Mark, um, gutted that our half an hour has gone so quickly you're going to have to come back and join me again and I want to say a huge thank you to you and a big thank you to all of our audience for tuning in if you'd like to learn more about NLP then tune in each week and also visit my website www.donnablinston.com where you can pick up a copy of my best-selling guide Psychobabble a straightforward plain English guide to the benefits of NLP 
Also, visit theorganicview.com and sign up for our newsletter, which will keep you updated with the up-and-coming shows and guests and the online workshop. The next workshop being on the 23rd of March, starting at 12 noon Eastern, 7 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, where we'll discuss how NLP can be used to improve your relationships, both personally and professionally, learning NLP techniques that will enable you to see events and problems from multiple perspectives and find out what is really important to you in a relationship. 